Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sabinan. I am the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. We have new episodes dropping every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. We're taping this episode of Battle Rhythm on Labor Day with Arthur Wolchinski discussing a variety of defensive security issues facing Canada today. And we can't help but uh, acknowledge that this is at the exact moment where we still don't know where the two perpetrators are in Saskatchewan who murdered 10 people and injured 15 others. Your first thoughts on this, Arthur, given that we don't really know what their motivations are or anything like that. Yeah, my first thoughts are with the people of Saskatchewan and the Cree First Nation who have been so directly affected by this terrible tragedy. I mean, it's it's horrifying. And, you know, as we learn more about it, I think we'll have time to reflect on, on motivation and, and what it means. But I can't help but think also that this mass casualty event is happening at the same time as the people of Nova Scotia are still going through the tragedy that happened there a couple of years ago in their own mass casualty inquiry. And I'm sure many Canadians are reflecting on what is happening in our in our country and in our society where these kinds of incidents seem to be, you know, happening at a greater frequency, or at least, you know, this level of casualties, it seems to be un-Canadian in its uh, scope. So I think a lot of Canadians are going to be reflecting on that and thinking of the victims and hoping that the, the perpetrators get caught very quickly. Yeah. And I guess the, the striking thing is that this is, you know, several hours, maybe even a 24 hours into it. And we still haven't found the individuals. And the Nova Scotia story was also a story of this one guy doing it for hours and hours and hours. And it speaks in part to the geography of Canada, that it is easier for these kinds of people to hide. But it also speaks to questions about the competence of the RCMP. That's what the study, right, why Nova Scotia is the news right now, is a report, yeah. the investigation in the Nova Scotia. I, I think that, uh, you know, the inquiry in Nova Scotia is raising some important questions around the RCMP and its role. Uh, though I wouldn't necessarily want to draw uh, draw parallels to what may be unfolding in rural Saskatchewan. I mean, it's a different geography, as you pointed out. It's a, it's a different context. The, the geography is much vaster in the prairies, and I think coverage in that area is a challenge. And I know that RCMP and other police forces throughout uh, Canada are obviously horrified by these kinds of incidents and, and do their best to try and address them. Whether or not they have the right complement, whether or not they have the right uh, skill sets mm-hmm. is something I think that, that uh, folks will look at in the context of Nova Scotia. And I'm sure there will be a thorough review of mm-hmm. what happened and, and the police response in Saskatchewan. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that, you know, we, we can't help but look at this online environment that we're, we're in and people constantly speak about these issues and speculate. One of the things that I've noted this morning and just in my own social media feed is how many folks are referencing, you know, uh, accessing their own personal firearms. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a number of folks have said, hey, it's time to actively clean our our, our weapons just in case uh, folks show up. So I think that one of the things that I, I'm mindful about is, is the way that folks respond to these incidents and how the online environment sometimes can encourage vigilantism in a way that is unhelpful to the police response to these types of, uh, of incidents. Yeah, I keep on wondering, is Twitter real life? And it's not. 
and it tends to highlight or inflate uh, various things that in our society. So it makes it seem as if things are getting much worse. And then perception is often reality. It tends to then create a, a more violent reality. So for instance, the story of the past two weeks has been the guy who verbally assaulted and pretty much physically threatened uh, Deputy Minister uh, Freeland that you know, raises questions about the security of our politicians and of our journalists, that the story of the past month has been how much abuse that politicians and journalists have received as our political atmosphere becomes radicalized. I, I avoid the word polarizing because I, I don't think the left is getting violent or extreme, but I do think the right is getting violent and quite extreme. And so we're seeing a lot more threats aimed at journalists. We're seeing a lot more threats aimed at politicians that during the convoy, there are folks with nooses that, that were targeting their nooses at Justin Trudeau, that there are people who now have on the back of their cars bumper stickers that threaten violence against Trudeau. Look, I think uh, what happened to Christia Freeland, uh, the deputy prime minister, and to her staff, I mean, I don't know if, the, if you looked at the at the image, uh, the images, but it was, uh, she was with a, a group of women uh, that were uh, accosted and threatened by a man who, you know, was physically intimidating and verbally assaulting them at the very least. I mean, it was it was a, an unacceptable, ridiculous situation. You know, the, the thing, though, that I do want to say is as someone who's worked on the Hill, I, I worked on the Hill between 1987, more or less, and uh, 99, threats against politicians and the use of hyperbolic language to, to criticize politicians isn't exactly new. Uh, I think yesterday was the anniversary of the uh, the fatal shooting in Montreal at uh, the nightclub where Pauline Marois, the former Quebec premier, was giving a victory speech where that killed a person and a number of, of fatalities. So it's not a new phenomenon. I think what's what's changing is the ability for those who have these kinds of sentiment to find community online where they 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 feed off of one another and create echo chambers that rationalize their extreme behavior and then make the kinds of confrontations that we saw online with the deputy prime minister uh, almost fodder for their perspectives, you know, for that kind of extremist right-wing violent uh, ideology. The person who costed them uh, videotaped it with the intent of, of, of actually seeking uh, validation from his political community online. This was intentional. This wasn't just kind of like, you know, accidentally caught uh, and then exposed. This, this was this was a, a deliberate attempt on, on their part to do that. And I think that that's what's changing. Uh, I think that the, the search for validation from uh, non-insignificant communities online uh, is making the, the environment particularly dangerous for politicians, for women politicians in particular, and for persons of color on top of it. I think that, that what's happening to, mm -hmm. to women journalists of color, the regular you know, vitriol is just horrifying. And everybody needs to stand up to it and, and, and say that it needs to be addressed. But I don't want to leave, you know, you said that, you know, you see this predominant, you don't want to use the word polarization. But I do want to say that, you know, there is some pretty horrifying language on the left, too. You know, you want to talk about, about recent incidents, you know, the Maruf incident. You know, here's a person who is calling uh, Jews dogs and mm -hmm. assaulted, you know, verbally in the same kind of horrifying language, though maybe not mm -hmm. in person. Erwin Kotler, the government's spokesperson and special envoy for combating anti-Semitism, it's not dissimilar language. Maybe it's not as, as frequent. Maybe it's not uh, uh, not as focused on in, in the media. But I, I do fear that there is a polarization and the middle is being empty. Uh, I would push back a little bit 
in part because there's there's two things that happened. You said that the, the big things that this happened is the environment creates a permissive condition for these these people to have developed communities. But there's two other things. One is that there's less shame. It used to be that these folks, you know, just wore robes and masks and stayed in, you know, did these t- events at night. And now they're freely willing to be identified as having these attitudes that one of the things I think Trump did in the United States, and I think it, it provided us as well, is that reduce the amount of shame that people have. They, that, so the white supremacists, the misogynists, the incels, the homophobes, the anti-Semites, the xenophobes all felt more comfortable being out in public. And so I oh, think no, that- I, I, I completely agree with that. I think that yeah. there is, and that's what I was saying, is that they're pitching at a community yeah. and uh, they might still be a, a small minority in terms of the general population, but they find significant numbers and validation online in that community. But it's not just online. So that that they, you know, march on Charlottesville. This weekend, there was a march of, you know, the blue shirts, khaki pants brigade in DC. It's a matter of the lack of shame of being seen out in public espousing these views. So that's the second thing. And the third thing I want to push back at is one of the differences between now and 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, well, maybe even before that, the reality is, is that there's one part of the political spectrum that's providing protection for these people. When Biden last week gave his speech about MAGA Republicans, he was talking about people who are anti-democratic. He was saying those people who don't believe that the election was legitimate, those people that espouse violence, you know, there's some good tweets this week about how that's about 10% of Americans. But the 10% of Americans are able to do what they're doing and having an outsized impact because the rest of the Republican Party and the rest of the right-wing media is pandering to them, Right. So they're not opposing them. Not, you know, they, you have a few voices like um, in Canada. Scott Anderson. Yeah, Scott Anderson has been doing a good job of sort of saying, "Hey, this is not the conservative party we want." On the other hand, we have a different politician, uh, Pierre Pulev, who's been embracing them. He went out and hang, hung out with them during the convoy thing, despite the fact that there are plenty of people, you know, clearly identified in the organization of the convoy who are tied to far right groups and anti-Semitic groups. Uh, white supremacist groups, that his response to the Freeland story was, hey, you know, this is bad and this happened to me. And it went on about, you know, happened to him and didn't really condemn the larger challenge that he faces, which is the right wing of Canada, the white wing of the United States, the right wing of other countries is, is now facing a transnational extremist movement that is violent. And they have the challenges. When you challenge them, you challenge the far right, the people who are slightly less right go, hey, hey. Don't attack me, you know, it's both sides or that's not so bad or whatever. And so they're getting given aid and comfort. I'm not saying that you're doing that. I'm saying that some of our politicians do that. It makes it hard to attack. I can't help but go back to 2009 where the FBI did a study showing that white supremacy was a real problem in the United States and far right extremism was a real problem. And the, their Republican friends, I got to call them friends, in, in the Congress pushed back and made Obama's team sort of squash that report. And so they didn't really act upon it. And now we're here, you know, 13 years later, where it's very clear there's a lot more violence in the United States and in Canada by far right people than by, let's say, either the far left. Look, I don't disagree with you. And quite frankly, what I, I share your concern that there are those on, on the right of the political spectrum that are quite frankly platforming these individuals and making them feel safe in various situations because they feel whether or not they're endorsed directly by some of these candidates, they feel that they have, that are they're given license to advocate these anti-democratic, bigoted, uh, violent bullying positions. 100%, I don't disagree with that at all. I too am worried by folks on, on the right using language and imagery, for example, eliciting the Holocaust or comparing the, yeah. the government to Nazis and dictators because if you do that, what you're essentially saying is you're giving you're giving social license, you're giving permission uh, to take extreme measures. If what you are confronting is Nazism or, or, or you know Soviet-style communism and totalitarianism, 
it rationalizes in people's minds uh, extremist activity is justified because they are so in the right. And I think that that discourse is profoundly anti-democratic. I share your deep concern with that. But I'm also, uh, yeah, I'm, not doing, I'm not trying to equivocate. And I, I'm not trying to compare one with the other. But uh, because I, I, I completely agree with you that the threat to democratic uh, institutions in the West is far more uh, prevalent in the, in the right than in the extreme left. But I think that we at our peril ignore also some of the anti-democratic tendencies mm -hmm. on the extreme left. Mm -hmm. uh, totalitarianism comes in a multitude of flavors and we shouldn't just pay attention to one because I think that uh, the ignoring, for example, as you point out, of right-wing extremism, of racist, misogynist, uh, homophobic and anti-Semitic extremism on the right has got us to where we are today because we haven't crafted the kinds of policies, we haven't empowered our national security and policing infrastructure to address uh, this kind of threat. And we have to recognize that we do need to be far more focused on, on that if we're to preserve our democracies into the future. I'm concerned uh, about the status of democracy in North America. I think the, the danger is far more present and clear uh, in the US than it is in Canada, mm -hmm. but we cannot, uh, I think, take for granted that the kind of delirium that is infecting parts of body politic in the US isn't quite frankly infecting us here in Canada and is on the rise. We can't ignore that the Proud Boys are funded by Canadians, so. Well, there you go. Every day I see this kind of stuff online and I think it's really dangerous. But again, I think it goes to what kind of tools do we give to our, our national security institutions in order to confront it? What's the role of organizations such as, as the RCMP? What's the role of organizations such as CSIS in confronting these threats to Canadian security? Well, that's a great segue. Thank you for, because uh, one of the things we want to talk about next is what CSIS has been doing outside of the country. Uh, what hit the news was that it turns out that uh, CSIS had a double agent within ISIS, and now it's become public as part of a British book, and people are raising the questions of what role does Canada have in espionage, and having double agents, what are they doing in their first job, their day job of being an agent, you know, an actor for whatever in this organization that, that we're trying to penetrate. Since you happen to work in that part of, of the security apparatus in Canada, I'm curious as to, as to your take on this. Well, look, I mean, so first of all, I... You're not commenting on behalf of the government. Disclaimer. <laughs> I did not work for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. I worked for, for foreign affairs in a national security capacity, and I worked for the communication security establishment in intelligence capacity. But I think that the first thing that, that, that folks need to realize, that this is like a general principle, uh, that in intelligence, sometimes you have to work with unsavory folks. You don't just go, you know, and, and it is literally the job of, of organizations such as, uh, as CSIS to find those who have information that will help Canada manage threats to its national security. We have to recognize that in order to do that, you're talking to, to unsavory folks, but we do it in a rules-based environment. It's not just, you know, open season that you can do anything. There is risk mitigation. There is an understanding of, of how, you know, how one can uh, needs to put parameters around these uh, these kinds of relationships. And the other thing that I think is really important for folks to, to know is that the activities of our intelligence agencies are subject to thorough review. Uh, you know, the, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians or the, the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency. These are robust organizations that, that have the ability to look at the operations of organizations such as CSIS, CSE, and any other uh, you know, organization working in, in, uh, in Canada's national security intelligence to see whether or not uh, they're operating consist not only consistent with the law, 
but uh, but consistent with values and practices. You know, Nisikov can look at this and go, you know, maybe it was lawful, but it's kind of just, you know, not what what uh, what's consistent with our values. We think we need to re-examine the law. But I think that that Canadians need to understand, as do our allies, that we have to work with with really unsavory folk in order to acquire the information that will help us manage uh, the risks to Canadians and Canadian society. Well, I guess a couple questions to have. One, just a, a factual question, which is Nisikov is relatively new. Nazira, how old is that? So both Nisira and, and Nisikov were created relatively recently. Nisira is something that evolved after the, the review agency that exclusively focused on, on CSIS. I think it was CERC was the, uh, was the acronym, Security Intelligence Review Committee. It was changed uh, legislatively a few years ago yeah. to give it a broader whole of government yeah. mandate to review all activities. It was precisely created to be able to follow the bouncing ball of, of intelligence between the different agencies and not stovepipe it. While it is new. I think it's built on, a, a, again, a robust heritage of specifically looking at the activities of, of, of CSIS to ensure that not only it's lawful, but it's consistent with the broad policy framework that it, that it has in place. NISICOP is a newer cre uh, creation, and it doesn't have that same kind of historic role that INSERA does. But NISICOP, I think, plays a really important role as well, where you know a group of, of parliamentarians, senators, MPs receive their top secret clearance. They can ask questions and they can be very probing in their engagement with uh, national security agencies like CSIS uh, and to get the information and then provide their advice and guidance back up to the prime minister as required. And then you know, if there are legislative changes that are required, if there are things that are inconsistent with the way that Parliament believes that, that the national security agencies work, there's an opportunity to have a conversation about what change is, is needed. And I think that that transparency back to Parliament is, is essential for Canadians in terms of understanding the roles of, of intelligence organizations like CSIS. Yeah, we don't have that the same kind of culture in Canada as it, with regards to intelligence that exists, for example, in the U.S. or the U.K., where legislatures, whether or not it's the House Select Committee on Intelligence uh, in uh, in the U.S. or the parliamentary committees in the U.K., we don't have that same engagement in Canada. So Canadians don't know. And I think that that's actually a gap. It's one of the risks. I think that intelligence agencies need to be more transparent, need to speak more often with Canadians so mm -hmm. Canadians and their representatives have a better understanding of what they do, how they do it, why they do it, and what are the guardrails that are in place to ensure that the, their operations are consistent with our laws and our values. The CDSN has been having a series of conversations lately with uh, SIF Intercom, which is the Canadian Forces Intelligence folks, and interested these days in doing this kind of outreach to, to educate the public about that. So that's why they're willing to talk to us about these various things. So I think there's more energy going on to that. You used to be the academic exchange guy over at, at CSEI, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I was one of them. I mean, I think that there's a, an increasing understanding across the the, uh, the security intelligence community that we do need to do a better job of transferring. Public safety had its National Transparency Advisory uh, Group that was chaired by an ADM over at uh, at Public Safety, along with Tamaz Juno and an academic colleague on on these issues. Yeah. I think that there there needs to be broader conversations about how we again have these discussions with Canadians. We're taking small steps. I mean, like the organization I used to work uh, work with, what used to be in its history over 75, most of its 75 years, it was a secret organization. And we're evolving now into an organization, or they're evolving now, I have to speak in the, <laughs> I'm not one of them anymore, uh, but they're evolving into, into more an organization that, that has secrets as opposed to a secret organization. And so while their operations need to be 
classified and lots of things need to be classified. I think having conversations with Canadians, having conversations with academics, having conversations with journalists about you know, the work that they do is essential. Because otherwise, as I say, you know, conspiracy theories grow in darkness. They're like mushrooms. They, they, they love the dark and moist and manure. And we, <laughs> we, we need to shine some light on these activities so that Canadians have confidence that the operations that are being done in their name are being done, again, consistent with our laws and our values there to protect Canada and Canadians and advance Canadian interests. Well, the challenge right now, of course, is that one of those two review agencies has become the target of politics, that Cop has been either stymied or, I guess stymied is the wrong word, but its legitimacy has been challenged because I guess it was Aaron O'Toole who started this thing with the, where is Cop on the, what, Manitoba labs and what's that relationship to the pandemic and to the government of China and all the rest of it. You know, it seemed to me that this was a good organization it was an imperfect solution because, yes, my, my own work on legislative oversight suggests the legislature should be doing this work, not sort of strange bodies that are mixtures of legislatures and executives. But it seemed like a good compromise. And now it's the compromise has been compromised by politics. Yeah, no, and I think that was always the risk. And that's always the concern around when one involves politicians in, in matters of, of, of national security. I mean, like, look, politicians have an absolute right to criticize and seek to ensure uh, that again, that that their perspectives are advanced with with regards to, to to national security institutions. But the review, the access to the information, and the and the, the ability to work collaboratively to ensure that our national security and intelligence and defense organizations are held to account, I think should be tried to be done in a nonpartisan way. My experience and my understanding in speaking with members of NISICOP in the past has been that they really have tried to, to rise mm -hmm. above the partisan fray. And I think that it's it's a lesson for all about, you know, that we need to be very deliberate and that politicians need to understand the effect uh, that trying to take a partisan approach to national security is not necessarily in Canada's interest. Hold the organizations to account. Ensure that members of all political parties in the House and Senate have an opportunity to ask questions and, and seek clarity and to make recommendations that are both classified and, when appropriate, unclassified. But partisanship, you know, when it comes to NISICOP, I agree with you, is completely unhelpful and and undermines its effectiveness. Yeah, Canadian politics is actually more partisan than other places. And I'm not going to say we should do away with partisanship. I just wish that the partisans were smarter about their target selection. So that way they don't destroy the institutions and they actually can score points. So to come back to my favorite thing is last year during the hearings over the sexual misconduct scandal in the Canadian Armed Forces, the Defense Committee got distracted by, hey, how can we drag this down and nail Trudeau on this by chasing after Kitty Telford and things like that? Whereas... I think they, they could have scored as many or more political points by talking about how, you know, they let this thing fester for years. Operation Honor was, you know, was actually not the thing to do to implement the Deschamps report. They let John Vance own that program, even though he was both tainted and they knew it, and he was doing things that were the opposite. So they could have actually focused on policy in a way that would have still painted the Trudeau government as being uh, hypocritical on its feminist credentials without, you know, sort of laying waste to... You know, they could have actually focused on the problems as opposed to just, you know, trying to get the prime minister directly, you know, in their targets. And so it just seems that, you know, people talk about Canada, Canada's political system being immature on national security issues. And this is what I mean by it in this context, which is you have ample targets. The government's always screwed up somewhere. And so why not focus on the things that don't erode the institutions? Why not focus on the things that might actually be productive as rather than destructive? Yeah, no, I, sh I share your lament. I mean, I think, you know, I'm going to show my age here. I remember when, when I first uh, worked on, on the Hill back in the, uh, in the mid and late 80s, 
uh, parliamentary committees were fantastic bodies that did real detailed uh, constructive work that at the end of the day were able to help shape and improve institutions. They weren't part of the, you know, just another platform for gotcha politics that 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 feeds into, you know, a, a 24 seven uh, news cycle or social media stream. And I, I think that it's important for, in my opinion, for committees to go back to that detailed work, to understand the institution uh, that they're meant to, to look at, to, to provide constructive criticism, to, again, make sure that those, you know, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater just to get a news hit, but that you're actually providing uh, good advice that legislators are supposed to do to, to the executive to make sure that the institution are more effective. I agree with you, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the solution is. I think that that we're in a particular information uh, ecosystem today that is quite different from the one that when I served in as a as a staffer on the Hill uh, decades ago. Uh, I'm not sure it's 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 helpful to productive policy conversation. And quite frankly, also that I think that the government's pension to just sort of keep information to itself and just sort of like lock everything down for fear that if something gets out, it'll 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 you know amplify a, a particular bad news cycle where parliament is just part of the issues management cycle of governing. I think that that compounds the problem, augments the the, the partisanship and the confront confrontational nature of the work that I think again is unhelpful to effective public policy. Yeah, I, I think that. The the incentive structure that we currently have does not breed good behavior. The question always is, is not only how do you offer up good policy advice, but how do you offer up good policy advice that politicians actually have an incentive to follow through on? And so how do we reform the, the Canadian political system in ways that it changes the incentives so that politicians actually do what, what works for them politically, but what works better for the country? In the study that we were doing, one of the ways we contrasted it is, is how much are politicians focused on scoring points versus improving policy. And some political systems, you know, the incentives are pointed in a way where they, they care a little bit more about policy and other political systems that care a little bit more about scoring points and candidates sort of on the extreme end of that. But to me about scoring points, uh, this is a really tortured segue, uh, we had uh, Jen Spillenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, wandering through the far north. And people were surprised to see Justin Trudeau hang out with him because Justin Trudeau, unlike his predecessor, rarely went to the north to hang out during these uh, exercises. Stephen Harper went every year, and Trudeau faced criticism for not going up north every year, but he went up north this year. What is to make of the joint tour of the Secretary General and of the Prime Minister far north? So first of all, I think it's great that Stoltenberg uh, visited uh, Canada as, as Canada's former ambassador to Norway. You know, I uh, I have an appreciation of Stoltenberg's view of, uh, of the high north, as the Norwegians refer to it, and the particular uh, challenges that that Arctic states in Europe have to Arctic security and defense uh, defense issues. But I think that that uh, you know Trudeau was recognizing the the reality that the war in in, in Ukraine, Russia's uh, stance vis-a-vis uh, NATO and Canada's uh, relationships with with Russia, that he had to send some signals around strengthening security. I also think that uh, Sweden's and Finland's soon-to-be accession to NATO does change uh, some of NATO's calculus about what it says about uh, about Arctic security. And I think Stoltenberg talking about Canada uh, playing more on the Arctic front was less around our Arctic specifically and more about the Arctic environment that includes now, uh, will soon include all Arctic Council states except for Russia. But I do think, I mean, this, this is our, Arthur's personal opinion. Trudeau is, I think, right to be skeptical about NATO's over-interest in Canada's Arctic. I think NORAD is the right construct for, for us when it comes to our Arctic. 
I think that, that Stoltenberg uh, talking to us about missiles and bombers coming over uh, over the North Pole into Canada. If anything, for me, that's a that's a good argument for for revisiting missile defense in Canada as opposed to you know increasing the number of rangers in the north. But I think that NATO's real interest in that is quite frankly is also is maritime. The challenge, quite frankly, that that NATO faces in the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap, and where they do have legitimate concerns, and where the Norwegians have uh, have in particular uh, legitimate concerns. And the question that Canada has to ask is, are we actually building capabilities that will act will make us be helpful in that context? I'm not worried about, uh, you know, was it uh, Natinchuk that talked about that if anybody tried to invade Canada over the north, they'd have to send a, a rescue team. I don't think that that's necessarily uh, changed that much. If you look at all the projections around uh, climate change and, and melting in the Arctic, it's actually the Northwest Passage that maintains its ice for the longest period in the high in the high north, just because of the Arctic gyre. What becomes navigable is the Northern Passage, which is along Russia's coast. And so when people say, "Oh my God, Russia is building, you know, uh, revamping its military," of course it, it should. <laughs> uh, it's in its interests to do that. I don't think we need to necessarily mirror that kind of uh, of posture because we don't have the same uh, same challenges that the, I think that the that the Russians will have. And the Russians, I think, are just as concerned about the Chinese in the Arctic as anybody else is. Because, again, the Chinese are looking for, for navigable routes, and those navigable routes are through Russian waters, not Canadian. Or through the Russia, the waters near Russia that are international waters. Because I, I take an American perspective, unclosed perspective about uh, waters. So I, I, I think the waters north of Canada and the waters north of Russia are international. Um, and therein but, lies the rub, right? I mean, I think you know, our closest ally doesn't agree with Canada's national sovereign position in, in our own Arctic. Those are internal waters. I take the Canadian approach. Those are internal Canadian waters. Just um, like the waters between Taiwan and, and China? Look, I think I, I'm mindful <laughs> of Canada's uh, interests in our high north and that th those waterways between Canadian islands are uh, that reach all the way up to the tip of Ellesmere are internal Canadian uh, waterways. I think, you know, this is part of the challenge uh, in terms of NATO's involvement, also in terms of our fraught relationship with the, the United States. It's complicated. You know, one of the things that Jens Stoltenberg, when he was prime minister, Norway and Russia actually came to an agreement on their maritime boundary in the high north. Now, the current Norwegian prime minister, when he was foreign minister, was very excited that he was able to reach that agreement with Lavrov. When I met with him, that was a big part of his sales pitch around his own capabilities in the international domain. We haven't reached that agreement between Canada and the U.S. in terms of the maritime boundaries in the north or the internal waterways issues. So this is complicated for Canada. I think that for us, we need to have effective ways to protect our sovereignty. One of the things we talked about, you know, conservatives earlier, one of the things I actually liked about the conservative leadership race, the number of folks are talking about the need for Canada to have a deep water port in, in the Arctic. And I think that that issue is as much economic as it is military, but the two go hand in hand. So I think that there are issues in, in, in the North from a defense perspective that we need to be mindful of. But one of the things we also have to be mindful of, and important to me just on a personal level, is that there are people who live in the Arctic, right? It's not just a, a, a geography. There is a people, there are peoples who live there. Uh, indigenous peoples, uh, the Inuit in particular, I think, have a lot to say and, and should have a lot to say about what kind of investments Canada puts in the north. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be spending billions, uh, multiple billions of dollars on, on defense and security in Canada's high north, I would love it if Iqaluit had an effective water treatment plant. I'd love it if the housing and the schools in the north actually reached certain standards. When we're talking about security in the, in the Arctic, we have to look at the human dimension as well 
as the as the hard military dimension. And I completely agree with that, that latter point, which is that I think that the way to exercise sovereignty in the North is actually to show that there is government in the North, which is, you know, include the Inuit people and provide public services for them and be an effective government in the North in partnership with the peoples of the North. I think that's far more important than military spending in the North. And I obviously think that I don't really care about, well, I don't want to say I don't really care about, I just don't, I don't see the Northwest Passage in the same way that you do, because I think that all straits should be, you should be able to drive through, whether it's in Sumatra, near Sumatra or in the far north. And as a globalist, someone could accuse me of, I, I think that having the same rules across the planet makes more sense than Cody Canada differently because I happen to be Canadian. But we'll have to leave it there. We've, we've talked a long time about a lot of complex issues. Arthur, it's always a pleasure. Enjoy your trip to the other side of the country. And thanks for taking part of your Labor Day to chat with me about these issues. Thanks, Steve. Always a pleasure. I'd like to welcome Danielle Gilbert to the Battle Rhythm podcast. She is currently a Rosenwald Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy and International Security at the Dickey Center for International Understanding at Dartmouth. She is on leave from her position as an assistant professor at the U.S. Air Force Academy. So she's gone from the big mountains of Colorado to the little tiny mountains that we don't like <laughs> to think of as mountains in New Hampshire. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Danny. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're speaking with you today because you are the expert on hostage-taking dynamics in international relations. You had a recent foreign affairs piece talking about where the Biden administration is on this. And so I guess the first question I have for you is, how did you get interested in this topic? It's not the average or near average or uh, topic for an international relations graduate student. No, it's certainly not the average topic. And you know, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, I don't have any personal experience with hostage crises. This is not something that I grew up thinking about or, or anything like that. When I started graduate school, I was taking a seminar on political violence in the fall of 2014. And the fall of 2014 is when the Islamic State quite infamously was kidnapping and beheading Westerners. It was the same time that Boko Haram was kidnapping hundreds of schoolgirls. And kidnapping was really in the news. And I was thinking about this kind of violence through the lens of the course that I was taking and looked at the literature and found that there really was not that much research on hostage taking or kidnapping as a form of political violence, as a threat to international security. Mm -hmm. And so my curiosity continued to build and my research agenda was born. And once you started working out, what were the big surprises? you came across as you were doing this stuff because again as you suggest there was no well-established literature so you're on your own starting this project what were some of the big things that's really were contrary to what you might have expected so most of my research to this point has actually been about actor kidnapping so that's rebels terrorists criminal groups who kidnap for ransom or for other demands i think one of the biggest surprises when i first started thinking about and looking into kidnapping was largely a non-lethal form of violence fast vast majority of kidnapped victims are released alive. And so the ones that we mostly hear about in the news, the ones that we think of are some of the most brutal, the most violent, the ones that end in beheadings and, and other forms of murder, but something like 90 to 95% of kidnapped victims survive. Wow. Uh, that's completely contrary to what, what we would expect from all the TV shows we watch mm -hmm. and the movies. So most survive. Does that mean that in most cases, the patrons, whether it's the 
family, the company, the state uh, is related to the victim, the hostage, give what is expected or desired that hostage takers want? Is it, or is it sometimes they get exhausted? Or is this is pretty much a story of 90% capitulation. No, that, that's exactly right. The vast majority of kidnapping cases are resolved when the target makes concessions. And most of those are ransom payments, but it might also look like a prisoner swap if um, if it's an agent of the state who was kidnapped and, and targeted. Uh, it might look like media attention or in some rare cases, policy change. But the, the vast majority of these cases are resolved with concessions made. Only a tiny minority of kidnappings end with the hostage escaping. So if it's such a successful form of coercion, mm-hmm. why don't more folks do it? That's a really good question. So it depends which kinds of perpetrators we are thinking about. And some of my work, my book manuscript and an article that uh, was published in the APSR a couple of months ago is all about the organizational dynamics that are required for armed groups to hold hostages. So if you're going to hold a hostage for any period of time, you need a safe place to hide them, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to protect your own armed organization from counterinsurgency or policing. You have to be able to feed the hostage and provide them some form of care, of medical care, because you're only going to get those concessions as the hostage taker if you keep the hostage alive. And so not all armed organizations have the infrastructure in a way to hold hostages for for that period of time. For states, it's a different story. So there are several authoritarian states which have started using their criminal justice system to take hostages as well. And for those countries, the downsides are reputational Mm. and that there are states like China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, who are arresting Westerners, often Americans, Canadians, Brit, and pretending that it's a legitimate criminal proceeding, but but in fact, holding them, them hostage. And, and that can damage their reputation on the world stage and have things like sanctions imposed against them. And then this leads to a lot of questions. So I guess one question I d- I'm just curious about is, are some groups and states doing this not so much for the uh, valid ends of the money or the swap, but just to prove that they're powerful, that to exert leverage, that this is a way for a non-state actor in particular, but even states to to, to tell the world that they exist, that, that they're a force to be reckoned with, because after all, part of power is the reputation for power. And so if they can be successful in these, mm-hmm. then they then they get more street cred. Oh, absolutely. I think that for a lot of perpetrators, whether they're states or non-state actors, the concessions are one part of it. The leverage works, the coercion works. They often get what they're demanding by holding someone hostage. But whether or not they get those concessions, in many cases, they still win. They embarrass their adversary or their target. They draw a lot of attention to themselves. There are lots of armed groups that the ones that do kill their hostages, they use that as a way to advertise their resolve to help with recruiting and things like that. So there's lots of reasons that state and non-state actors take hostages short of the concessions that they might receive that they find quite beneficial. You have been in the news a lot lately because of the Brittany uh, Griner case. What do you expect to happen here? So Brittany Griner, just as a, a quick primer American WNBA star, she was arrested in Russia in February for international drug smuggling. The case went on uh, over the summer and last month she was 
convicted and sentenced to nine years of hard labor in a labor camp. Right now, her case is undergoing an appeal. So her legal team is pursuing an appeal through the Russian criminal justice system. But I do not think that that is how this case will be resolved. At the same time that her case was going through the criminal channels, the United States government is negotiating for her release. So the U.S. government considers her to be wrongfully detained. Her case is in the purview of a, an office at the State Department called the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, in mm. effect, the U.S. chief hostage negotiator or chief diplomat on these issues. And he is negotiating behind the scenes with Russian counterparts for her release, as well as the release of another American currently imprisoned in Russia named Paul Whelan. And so I expect that Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan will come home eventually through negotiations, maybe concessions. There's been lots of talk of a prisoner swap. And she has not been in the news the past couple of weeks. It has been very, very silent, which I personally take as a good sign. It means that these negotiations are happening behind the scenes, and hopefully we hear about them soon when they're done. Well, that's that's some relief. These things do tend to go on and on, and I'm not sure how mm -hmm. much media attention helps or hurts. I guess my, since this is a podcast from a Canadian point of view, we, of course, are looking back at the two Michaels experiences, fairly traumatic that the Chinese yes. had these two guys for something approaching a thousand days, and they were not mm -hmm. treated well while uh, being detained in China. Could the Canadians have handled this any better, or were they simply at the whims of both uh, China, because they held hostages, and the United States, because this was all part of a extradition process? Could Canada handle this any differently? That's a great question. So my article about the two Michaels, which is what originally got me interested in exploring this phenomenon of hostage diplomacy, is titled Caught Between Giants. And essentially, <laughs> they, they Canada was in a, in a really tough spot that they had Meng Wanzhou in custody in the first place because of the U.S. extradition request, and that China is quite powerful on the world stage and, and also a, a powerful trading partner and also potential coercive adversary. And so that makes things incredibly, incredibly difficult. It doesn't really matter how powerful you are as a state. There's very little you can do when another state has your citizens imprisoned in, in its jail. No one's talking about launching rescue missions to get our citizens out of jail in China or in Russia or places mm -hmm. like that. So even though the Chinese never admitted that this was tit for tat, and, and even at, at the conclusion of the case, the Chinese, Canadian, and American governments all said that the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou's cases were completely unrelated. We can obviously look at the facts and know that that is not true. And part of the characteristics that help us know that these cases are related was the timing. Sure. Every single time that something happened to Meng Wanzhou, something equivalent happened to the two Michaels, except for the fact that while she was in house arrest in her mansions in Vancouver, the Michaels were sometimes in solitary confinement and they didn't have consular access. I mean, it was quite devastating what, what they went through. It's quite difficult to think about how to approach these cases better. And it's something that I've been puzzling through, including in that piece in, in Foreign Affairs which is that the best way to get your citizens home is to make concessions. It works. 
and by reaching a deferred prosecution agreement for Meng Wanzhou and having her admit guilt that she could be released and then the Michaels came right home. But there's a question about whether or not that might incentivize states like China to do this again. It taught them that it could work, you know, that by holding citizens hostage in the criminal justice system that they can get the leverage that they want. And so what I hope to see Canada and the United States and our allies do going forward is think about, first of all, ways to prevent this from happening in the first place. And in some cases, that's things like travel warnings and really advising our citizens to be careful when they're traveling to, to these kinds of places and working in these kinds of places, but also punishment mechanisms. And punishment is very difficult in the international system. Mm -hmm. But if all of the states that are experiencing this together coordinate on things like sanctions, on naming and shaming, on defining this as hostage taking and thus a violation of international law, that we might be able to see a curb in this trend. And the Canadian government has led the way with a declaration against arbitrary detention. There are uh, nearly 70 countries that have signed on as signatories to this declaration so far. And I hope to see the US, Canada, and the UK, especially as targets of these kinds of arrests, working together closely going forward. Do you think Americans and Canadians should go to China these days under these conditions? I wouldn't. Um, I, I'm not I'm not planning to travel to a state like China anytime soon or, or possibly ever. One of the problems with the way that these cases unfold is that it's usually not an average tourist who gets mm -hmm. arrested under these conditions. It's almost always someone with lots of experience living and working in the foreign country. It's the kind of people who spend a lot of time in authoritarian countries. And in some cases, those are dual citizens. Those are people mm -hmm. going home to visit family or a country where they have a lot of connections or they're doing long-term work there. But the governments in places like Iran and China and Russia consider some of the work that Westerners might be doing as inherently threatening to their regimes. And so that's going to be journalists, mm -hmm. NGO workers, aid workers, you know, the, the kind of people who are going to be inclined to travel to those places anyway, because they, they want to report on mm -hmm. what's going on. They want to uncover what these dynamics look like. And so that puts people with a lot of experience and often very savvy travelers still in a very difficult position. What's interesting here in the Russian case is that in this case, there's actually some financial stakes within Russia not to do this kind of thing because uh, the basketball league was one that got a lot of foreigners playing there, helping that league be successful. And I can't expect any WNBA player, any, any non-Russian player is going to go to Russia these days knowing that they might become a, a hostage to the whims of, of, of a Russian apparatus. Absolutely. So... There are a lot of players from the WNBA who spend their off-season playing for leagues overseas outside the United States. And a big part of that is that they make a lot more money playing in their off-season in a place like Russia than they do playing at home in the WNBA. Something like five times their salary is what they can make in the off-season. And not only can they make five times their salary, they're treated like royalty. They are loved and they are champions and they are 
they are treated normally very, very well. And so it's been a very attractive proposition, not only for the kind of athletes who want the chance to play in the big leagues in the United States, but also some of our absolute top athletes are, are doing this. So it's probably not going to happen as much. I mean, I think that a lot of the WNBA players are stepping away from their Russian teams. I saw some reporting a week or two ago about the players who are considering going over to Russia in the off season. And there was maybe one female player who had signed up to go to Russia and all of the others who regularly go there in the off season decided not to go. But there were more men's basketball players who were planning to go to play in Russia. And so we'll see what happens with that. You know, the Russians would obviously want them to come because they care a lot about basketball. They want their league to be successful and everything like that. And they are also committed to the farce that their criminal justice system is legitimate, that Brittany Griner is an international drug smuggler. And if they have other Americans who come to Russia and don't get arrested, it helps them, you know, further that that story and claim that that this is not something that they're just doing to any American who who comes into their country. So I would hope that most of them don't return. I don't think it's safe. I don't think it's safe either. And and I wonder how much intra-league dynamics there to be where there'll be much shunning of, of players who do go abroad. I, uh, China's mm-hmm. become a major place for American male players to go when their careers are on the decline. I mm-hmm. don't expect them to look at, at Brittany Griner and see that as a warning. They should. Yeah. The State Department added new travel travel warnings for Mm -hmm. the six countries that are most likely to use their criminal justice system to hold Americans wrongfully or arbitrarily. And I don't know how much the American public looks at State Department travel warnings when when making their their travel decisions. These were all countries that the State Department advising Americans not travel to. But but they added a new special designation, the letter D for Mm -hmm. detention or detainment to Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and Burma. And essentially saying that these are six countries where you as an American can expect a high risk of being wrongfully or unlawfully detained if you travel there. And that the State Department is strongly urging you in its strongest terms not to take that risk. I guess this matters for insurance. So for ordinary people, that might not be a huge deal. But for basketball players who potentially could be making millions of dollars, they might be more motivated by their insurance companies saying, well, we're not going to insure you if you go to China or Russia or Russia too worried about basketball in Burma uh, or North Korea. But it would seem to me that that would be the, the government policy would then create private incentives, you know, insurance mm-hmm. companies. So that, that would be the way it would be translated. This actually goes back to one of the first questions you asked me about what were some of the most surprising things that I learned when I started studying kidnapping and hostage taking, which is that there is such a thing called kidnap and ransom insurance. It's called Mm -hmm. K&R Insurance. Most policies are held in the UK at Lloyd's of London. K&R Insurance policies cover things like ransom payment, supporting a hostage negotiator or consultants to help your family or employer navigate this process, Mm -hmm. lost wages during your time in captivity and things like that. But the interesting thing about K&R insurance is that individuals typically don't know when they have a K&R insurance policy. It's something that a company or an organization purchases for their employees. And depending on on some complicated actuarial calculation of the employee's 
value to the company and mm -hmm. the kind of risky travel that they're doing. Mm -hmm. The employees have different size policies and employees are not informed that these policies exist, nor what the value of the policy is. And that's to caution against moral hazard. It's so that if I were ever kidnapped, I wouldn't immediately say to my captor, please call Lloyd's of London, here's my <laughs> policy, you know, it's worth X hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know? And so people don't know, but but it exists and those policies are quite useful in these kinds of cases. Yeah, I knew that that kind of insurance existed. I did not know that the actual policy content was kept away from those who are being insured. That's a wonderful mm -hmm. illustration. I guess one of the questions that comes up with the Brittany uh, Griner case and also, yeah, with and with other places elsewhere is not everybody gets the same level of attention uh, from their right. home governments or from their corporations. Is there sort of a common logic? Is it about domestic lobbying? Is it about NBA, you know, basketball players versus everybody else? What have you seen mm -hmm. in your studies about what is the logic of discrimination that causes some people to get more support, more concessions, more longer mm -hmm. negotiations than others? This is really interesting to me. And I think there are a bunch of different factors that go into this. So this is something that I hope to continue uh, studying going forward. So some of my research looks at media coverage of international kidnappings. Mm -hmm. And the two main factors that I identified that determine how much media coverage an international kidnapping receives is whether or not the kidnapping is framed as terrorism and how many hostages there are per incident. So regardless of where the kidnapping occurred, whether the perpetrator is designated officially as a terrorist organization, if the media calls the kidnapper a terrorist or the act terrorism, the kidnapping gets far more media coverage than one without a terrorism frame. So a criminal kidnapping, for instance. The number of hostages is maybe a bit counterintuitive in that the fewer hostages there are per incident, the more attention each hostage receives. And this is related to a phenomenon known as the collapse of compassion. The quote that is sometimes attributed to Stalin that one, one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic, mm. that it is really easy to pay attention to a single named victim with a story and a name um, than it is a, a lot of people. So, so we see that in hostage taking as well. But there's a bunch of other dynamics that determine media attention. So race and gender play a big role here. Celebrity plays a big role here. One of the most important factors for how much attention one of these cases receives is what the family and employer of the hostage decides to do. In a lot of cases, they want to keep it quiet, which is typically the government's recommendation in the United States. Keep it quiet. Sure. That keeps the price down. It removes a lot of the possibility of leverage. Some cases, these are quite sensitive situations. And so the family might opt to keep it quiet and then it never makes the media at all. Some families want to go extremely public with this. And what they're doing when they get invested in an advocacy campaign is it's not about pressuring the hostage taker to let their loved one go. It's about putting pressure on the U.S. government or or whatever government in, in, in Canada or in any other country. It's about raising the political stakes for an administration that they can't afford to ignore the case. Um, but that's difficult, does, is it puts the pressure on democratic governments to make 
concessions to our adversaries, uh, yeah. which often that's the way to bring someone home, but they want to take as much time as possible so that they can explore every possible creative option and, and not make concessions too quickly. The last feature of determinations of attention and media coverage is something that I've been looking at with a co-author of mine, Lauren Prather, about what we call the deservingness of a hostage. Mm -hmm. So the American public, and we haven't tested this in other contexts, though we hope to, the American public in general supports hostage recovery. But if they think that a hostage was personally responsible for putting him or herself in danger, they are less supportive mm -hmm. of costly efforts to bring that person home. And so that explains what we're seeing, for example, in the Brittany Griner case with a lot of people saying, well, she was carrying drugs. She was a criminal. She should do her time in the Russian prison. And something that advocates and that I try to draw attention to is that carrying 0.7 grams of hash oil, which is what she uh, pled to have done, does not make someone an international drug smuggler. And it certainly doesn't make someone deserving of nine years of hard labor in a penal colony. And most importantly, it doesn't mean that she should be swapped for an arms trafficker in, in a prisoner swap. That's not how the international system of states treats criminal legitimate criminal justice trials. Mm -hmm. And so she really is being held as a hostage, even if the circumstances of her arrest might shape how the American public feels about her. You were just talking a second ago about the factors that shape media coverage. Have you mm -hmm. seen how the patterns of media coverage shape the outcomes of these hostage crises? It's a very good question. So first of all, there's not good data on these mm -hmm. things in general. Uh, it's something that I hope to continue studying looking into as as my career progresses but not only is there is there not a lot of data it's really really hard to know to isolate the factors in any of these individual cases it seems like one of the things that media coverage does and i think a lot of people who pay attention to these cases would agree is that it tends to raise the price it might make the demands higher but it also tends to result in a successful outcome now mm -hmm. it's really difficult to know whether or not that person still would have come home if there was no attention to it, if the price would have been lower mm -hmm. uh, without attention to it. And so these are the kinds of tricky things that I hope to be able to tease out in future research so that I can answer that question. Because I think it's something that policymakers want to know, that families want to know. Mm -hmm. And so much of the decision-making in these crises is emotional. I mean, how, mm -hmm. how can it not be? These are our citizens who are locked up indefinitely, sometimes in solitary confinement, and we want to do what we can to, to get them back. So I think knowing the answers to those questions would be really quite valuable. Well, I want to thank you uh, for your research. I, I think you found an area that is truly understudied. It's the job of every graduate student to say that their area is truly is understudied, but, <laughs> but you and your work is in an area that, that isn't, hasn't been well covered. And your work in the media, talking about these matters has helped to clarify a lot of the dynamics because there's, a lot of, there's not, not a lot of scholarship in this field is largely yours. And I'm glad that you're going to continue pursuing these questions because they are 
are complex, they are difficult to measure, and often we tell graduate students, oh, that's hard, don't do it. I'm sure some people probably told you along the way, oh my goodness, how are you to get the data for this? But you stuck to it, and I'm glad you're sticking to it, because I think that it's it's going to be, you know, because it works, it's not going away. And even the Biden administration's policies, which you talked about in that recent foreign affairs piece, might raise the cost a little bit. I don't see Russia or China learning any lessons anytime too soon, not to mention, I mean, the actors that we're all talking about are so highly sanctioned for all other kinds of things. Sanctioning right. like this is not going to really move the needle for them. It's like the Russians are like, what more are you going to do to us? And the North Koreans don't have a lot of economic relations with us to begin with. I have one last question before I let you go, which is long before you went to graduate school, there was a hot debate about greed versus grievance in scholarship, which is do groups, what causes groups to be violent and to be successful, you know, to endure and even to start their, their violence? And one argument was that those that, you know, if they have resources, they can do it. If they don't have resources, they can't. The other side of it was if they've got grievances, they'll do it. And if they don't have grievances. And the way I always, I was always a grievance guy uh, because I always thought that if you're, you know, what you really need is intelligence. If you got intelligent insurgents or terrorists or whatever, they will find a way to fund it. And, you know, hostage taking is something you don't need to have little diamonds. You don't need to have lumber or oil or cocaine or some other thing to, mm-hmm. greed people are all focused on with these resources. You just need to have smart people to do the, and, and as you suggested, a place to hide and take care mm-hmm. of your hostages. So I guess from your standpoint, do you see your stuff entering into this debate? Is it really more about insurgents or states or whoever being clever, or is it about, you know, the places that are tourist destinations will have a greater resource to engage in doing these kinds of behaviors? I love this question. Thank you for asking it. I, I haven't thought of it in particularly this way, but I do think that my work weighs in on this. And specifically, the main argument of my, was my dissertation, now my book manuscript, and an, an article that came out recently, is that armed groups kidnap as tax enforcement. Mm-hmm. So the the groups that I study most closely, which are the left-wing rebel group in Colombia, the FARC and the ELN, are groups that started without those kinds of natural resources. They didn't pursue the oil and the diamonds and the, the lumber that the greed folks might say. Instead, they were quite ideological. They were focused on governing the rural populations of Colombia. And these groups imposed a system of taxes, just like the state would, on the wealthiest people in their territory. And so it was ideologically consistent way for them to adopt kind of this Robin Hood mentality. We're going to take from the rich and it will fund redistribution to poor. But not everybody wants to pay taxes to the left-wing rebels that have taken over their territory. And so I argue that these groups used kidnapping to enforce their system of taxes. Instead of killing people who shirked what they wanted to do, kidnap for ransom was a quite effective way to enforce their tax system because it recouped the money that was lost as soon as they got the ransom payment. And it advertised quite effectively to the greater population that you should keep paying us or this will happen to you. And so a kind of argument for a form of violence, a form of civilian victimization that really draws on both the monetary and the ideological forms of conflict. So in that way, I think hopefully it can be a contribution to that conversation. Well, you've made a big contribution to public conversations about not only the Brittany Pryor case, the two Michaels cases, but this larger phenomenon. And it's good to see that your stuff is making it to the best publications. You 
slipped in a reference to the APSR or the American Political Science Review is, is flagship journal in the United States. It was very, very hard to get into. So congratulations on that. Foreign Affairs is a great outlet uh, read by policy types. So you're you're hitting all the big places with your stuff and it's because it really is making a big contribution. So congratulations on your success. I hope you have a good, easy drive up to Montreal next week for the big political science conference up there. I, I hope to see you there and thanks for being on the algorithm, Danny. Thank you so much. This was really such an honor and a treat and uh, it was delightful to talk with you. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure.